Good evening, and welcome to Colorado Decides, a joint production of Colorado Public Television, CBS4, and KOA News Radio. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Joining me is Sean Boyd, political specialist with CBS4 News, and political analyst Eric Sonderman. Tonight, we continue our coverage of the 2016 election by focusing on Proposition 106, also known as the Medical Aid in Dying Proposal. If passed, this initiative would make assisted death legal among patients with a terminal illness and are expected to die within six months. Joining us for the next half hour are Julie Selzberg, a proponent with the Yes on Colorado End of Life Options campaign, and Carrie Ann Lucas of the Not Dead Yet, a campaign opposing this initiative. We have limited time, so let's get right to it. Sean, just start us off. So this first question has seemed kind of obvious, but do we need a law to allow people to end their lives? Can't they just do that now, Julie? We do need this law, and here's why. People can end their lives if they are suffering at the end of a terminal illness. But there are people like my dad who uh, suffered greatly uh, in doing that. And uh, the only option he had, he was dying from ALS, and the only option that he had was to withhold nutrition. And that took 13 days for his body to shut down. So we need this law because it is kind and compassionate to offer people in the last stages of dying who are suffering an option such as this, because otherwise it is illegal. Kirian, want to talk about your opposition? Oh, we'd, re we'd argue that no, it's not necessary, that people do have the option to, to one, they can take matters in their own hand, but really, we really want Colorado to be known as, as a really a good state for palliative care and hospice. And this measure does nothing to improve that kind of end-of-life care, which will be what most people will access. And in, when looking at this type of option, people, people do not need to die in pain. People do not need, in fact, nobody should. And nobody, people don't want to die in hospitals. People don't want to die in nursing homes. We don't disagree with that in the least. But people do have options like terminal sedation so that people are not dying at the end of their life, they're not at the end of their life and in pain. There are, there are options to, to treat that pain. Um, and, and frankly, for folks who, who do have conditions like advanced ALS, they're not going to qualify under this, under this law, this proposed law, anyways. Why? It requires self-administration, or at least that's what the terms of the law say. You have to be able to self-administer the medications yourself. So if you have an advanced, advanced illness that affects motor function, it's not going to apply to you, and that's something that's come up in the legislature the last couple of years. Eric? Well, I have a question, but I want to stay on this subject and maybe have Julie respond mm -hmm. to um, what Gary Ann just offered. Is that, is that the case? Would that have been the case with your father? No, it would not, as it wouldn't have been for um, all the patients who have ALS and who have taken advantage of this law, like, for instance, in Oregon. Uh, what happens with patients with ALS? Um, there is some mobility left. And uh, what they do is they, they take the medication before it would advance to the stage of their body being in total lockdown. And that's their decision, just like it was my dad's decision to decide when he had had enough suffering. That's an individual de decision uh, of when to do it. And there's a whole nice series of articles in the Oregonian newspaper about ALS patients who decided when their suffering had uh, been enough. Let me pose a question to you, Carrie Ann, and then we'll let Julie comment as well. I mean, this is very personal in the sense, just within the last week, my wife and I had to say goodbye to a beloved family pet who was suffering clearly at the end of her life. Why do we treat our four-legged friends in some ways almost better 
then we treat other humans in terms of not making them go through that final suffering. The reality is, is we don't have to allow anybody to suffer at the end of their life in that way, and people can do that. But we really approach this from a social justice perspective, is that we have a, we have a medical system that is profit-driven, even when looking at state-run systems such as Medicare and Medicaid, the words cost containment frequently are in use by, by folks who are setting budgets and so forth. So we really do have a profit-driven healthcare system. So when, when the option for, to offer a lethal prescription becomes the cheapest possible healthcare for somebody who has expensive, expensive medical costs, we're concerned that lives will be lost through coercion, abuse, and mistakes. And we don't allow people to suffer in that way either. Nobody has to have medical interventions that they don't want. Nobody has to have, nobody has to be dying in pain because there are options to relieve that pain. From my perspective, the truth is that there is a small percentage of people in hospice care, and this is not denied by hospice nurses especially, that cannot be helped with either pain management or pain control or uh, palliative care. And so uh, we had this discussion numerous times in my family. I have a dog, my sister has a dog, my dad has a dog. We would never hold them for 13 days and watch them suffer, never. Sean? What's in this that protects against abuse? Because Carrie Ann touched on this, you know, the, with the cost containments these days and maybe it would be more cost effective to give the, this medicine and, and the life than it would be to continue it. Are there safeguards? There are safeguards and there's really two parts to, to answer that question. Number one is I just don't believe that that is going to happen. This law has been in place in Oregon for more than 18 years and it has not happened. If there is an issue with cost savings with insurance companies, the appropriate place to address this is in Title 10 of our Colorado Revised Statutes. Our government, our legislature, is tasked with regulating insurance. That is the appropriate place to go after regulations. It is not appropriate in this measure that is meant to alleviate suffering for a very small percentage of the population, and it is not shown. There is no evidence that this has been abused in 18 years in Oregon. Carrie Ann. Speak to we that. would differ. Um, we'd like to differ. There's cases such as Thomas Middleton, who was a gentleman who had ALS, whose whose caregiver stole his estate. And I know proponents often say, well, the statistics don't rec reflect any abuse because the, the statistics in Oregon are so weak and so limited that they don't they don't capture that information, and they're they're not kept so that epidemiologists and so forth can actually study what's actually happening in Oregon and Colorado frankly even has less information being collected than Oregon but in the case of Thomas Middleton for example he's a gentleman who did have ALS whose caregiver stole his estate and was convicted of that that isn't reflected in any of the, the official statistics about the Oregon law but certainly raise, raises grave concerns but in terms of the protections there's, there's a couple of really big areas where, where there's, there's really big gaps. The first area is at the time of the actual administration. There's nothing, there's nothing requiring there be any medical professional available at the end of, at the time the, the lethal prescription is taken. So this means if something goes wrong, and, and there are times, there have been instances in Oregon where people have not died 
where they have woken up after taking the medication. They have, they have had side effects and so forth. Some of the drugs are used are the same drugs that are used for lethal injections uh, and, for, and for, for administering the death penalty. So we know that there's errors in, when that happens too. So there's no medical professional to be able to treat that at that time. Also, there's no one present to ensure that these drugs are, are being administered as, as required because the way that the law is written is that it, it, it limits the ability of coroners to investigate if there's a problem. And it also requires, if someone's requested, the lethal prescription, and if it gets used, it's required that their death certificate then reflect the cause of death being the use to being the underlying condition, not the use of the lethal prescription. Which means if somebody has has been coerced into using into taking the medication, such as somebody who's been given it uh, without their knowledge, which would be easy for someone like me. Uh, my attendants prepare my medications uh, in my kitchen. I'm at, they bring them to me in another room. I take my medications in. I never know what's I would never know for sure what's in those syringes. I mean, I trust my attendants, but I don't know that, that something, something untoward couldn't happen. And the statistics just simply aren't designed in Oregon to, to capture that, so where they, that could happen. And it's just a simple safeguard, and we're not understanding why the proponents would not include that. The other concern is that there's no requirement that people uh, see a doctor who's known them for any length of time, so people can doctor shop. So if, if I were to go to my doctor, for example, I would qualify under this bill. I, I rely on life, life, I rely on life, uh, life support uh, equipment. And if I were to go to my doctor and say, okay, I'm, I, I'd be depressed and go to my doctor, I'd hope my doctor would say, no, I think you're depressed, give you mental, mental health treatment. But nothing would stop me from just going to another doctor until I found one that would give me a lethal prescription. Julie, you've covered a lot of ground there. Did you respond? A whole lot, and I sort of need notes to go back to all the topics. So um, if I haven't hit one, Please speak up. Uh, we'll start with Thomas Middleton. Thomas Middleton, this is, is not a, an abuse of the death with dignity law in Oregon. He was had a caregiver who was a criminal, and that was going to happen whether he had applied and, and received the prescription for aid in dying or he had not. It, the same is true here. I, when, in Colorado, if this law isn't enacted, there is not anybody who is waiting around to say, I'm going to take advantage of the aid and dying law that's going on in Colorado in order to carry out my criminal act. I am a career prosecutor. If people want to commit this kind of a crime, they are going to do it. They are not waiting for this. If anything, this law exposes them to more liability because this person who is requesting the medication, and we'll move into the safeguards, they have to go see not just any doctor, they have to go see their attending physician. An attending physician is defined in our statutes as someone who is familiar with the patient, their terminal illness, and their prognosis. It is not just anybody. Yeah, as far as depression goes, I will tell you, having two parents who died from terminal illnesses, it is depressing. It's depressing for everybody. But being depressed and being clinically depressed or being mentally incapable, they're not the same thing. Um, and, and, and the safeguards that are built into this measure, you go see your attending physician. The attending physician has to diagnose you and, and say that you are terminally ill with six months or less to live. That uh, diagnosis has to be confirmed by a consulting physician. Also, consulting physician is defined as somebody who is familiar with the terminal illness at, at hand um, and what the prognosis would be. 
the person who is requesting the medication has to make two oral requests. They have to be separated by 15 days. They have to prove that they are mentally capable to make those requests. And those requests are made alone with their doctor. There is not anybody in the room. So if there is a problem with mental capacity and being able to request this medication, if there is a, a possibility of coercion or exploitation of this person, that is covered as what doctors do every day. They evaluate their patients. It is uh, something to be done alone with their doctor. There is a third safeguard in there. There is a written request. The written request is a form document. It spells out exactly what they are asking for and exactly what the consequences would be for taking this medication. And it has to be witnessed by two different people. One person cannot be a family member or an heir. One person cannot be a doctor. One person cannot be somebody who has power of attorney or medical power of attorney or runs a healthcare facility where that person resides. Let me follow up on, on the part about the doctors because we actually had a um, high school debate version on this very issue, which I thought they both did a great job uh, from East High School. But they, they talked more about the doctors and when medical marijuana was passed in Colorado, it was, it was, it was going to be very strict and it had to be, you know, right, right from the doctors. But it, it went very quickly to something where even though somebody was legally a doctor, people could get it whether they had a sore back for years or not. Now, this is not medical marijuana. I'm not trying to equate the two. But getting uh, a doctor that could qualify under these safeguards, as you stated, doesn't seem that difficult um, if someone really wants to um, get to make this happen. Um, why are these safeguards different than in other laws like medical marijuana? Well, again, I think you can't equate medical marijuana with us. We rushed in medical, medical marijuana. We put it in our constitution. We had no regulation set up. We had no statutory scheme set up. So I really don't think that we can equate it to medical marijuana. We also are talking about something that is of the utmost seriousness, right? Somebody's life. And so I, I just, I don't have that distrust in our doctors. It has not happened in the 18 years in Oregon that they have had rogue doctors writing prescriptions for medical aid and dying. Um, so I, I, I don't see the comparison between the two. Okay. Um, I mean, let's let the Carrie okay. Ann chime in on this one, specifically on the doctor's point. Well, with, with respect to the doctors, uh, we would agree that they're, frankly, doctors, there is no requirement that somebody has any sort of longevity into their relationship. Somebody could see somebody twice, and then all of a sudden they're their attending doctor. Uh, even after one single visit, they could be their attending doctor. There's nothing nothing in this in this initiative that would change that and that that is a concern and, and the doctors frankly doctors make mistakes we all almost everybody you can talk to has a story of knowing somebody who had a terminal prognosis they're going to die in X amount of time and they outlive that by a substantially longer period of time in fact the statistics the statistics in Oregon reflect that because they show where people have been administered a lethal prescription and they live they wait years to use it. Well, that shouldn't be somebody who's eligible under this under this law. They're really within six months of death. And part of the concern is that it's six months of death without treatment. So that would mean every person with type one diabetes would be eligible under this under the way that this law is written. Can I respond to that? quickly? And we'll get to Go ahead. Okay. So two things. Uh, one is. That's great if a doctor is wrong. Who is rushing to take this medication? Somebody who gets this diagnosis and who receives a prescription is not in their final stages. They are getting it and they are waiting until they decide 
It is their body and they have had enough suffering. So if they are wrong and they live, that's awesome news. And they don't have to take this prescription. I should also point out, this is not mandatory for anybody, whether it's a patient or the doctor. This is only people who want to be a part of this. It is not making anybody participate, and that is clearly written into the statute. Eric? Well, that's a nice segue, because I was going somewhat in the same direction. I'll direct this to you, Carrie Ann. Isn't what this initiative is doing largely putting in statute what has been going on in the shadows for decades now? I flash back to a family experience more than 35 years ago, where somebody was dying of a brain tumor. And they chose this way out when the suffering got that intense. And this has been going on, to my thinking, for decades or generations. Aren't we now taking it out of the shadows and somewhat regulating it? And isn't that preferable to leaving it in the shadows? I, I don't think so, because at least the way it's written now, that if somebody were, were experiencing abuse, or coercion, there's there's a way to investigate it. This really really high prevents that from happening in many ways. And the reality is, is what you're talking about is people are not receiving intentional lethal doses that are intentionally described prescribed that way. Yes, most people who are at the end of their life do have a medicine cabinet full of medication that can that can accomplish that. We don't have to codify it in our laws in a way that puts people like me at risk. Where People who are, who are not wanting to take advantage of this can be subjected to not sometimes overt, overt abuse and coercion on the behalf of, say, a greedy heir, but also that, that, less, that, that more covert kind of coercion that happens when somebody says, I'm not going to fund your wheelchair. Oh, but by the way, we do offer, we do offer a lethal prescription as treatment for, for your condition, and that's what, that is what's happened in Oregon. So that's the concern is that, no, I'm not going to fund your chemotherapy, but instead I'll fund this lethal prescription. Then it's not a real true choice on the part of the individual because we don't want people to suffer, which is why it's so important for us to, to really improve palliative care and, and hospice, which, which is, there's nothing to do. Julie, do you want to change I response? wholly disagree, going back to the first part of your question. It is going on, and I know this from collecting signatures across the state. People came up to me and said, you know what? I helped. I helped my husband. I've helped patients. It is going on. And in fact, palliative sedation, it just, it's going on in hospice. It is legal. It does not help every single hospice patient. And yet, this is what something that the opposition relies on. You can just have palliative sedation. My dad had it, and it was gross. It is not something that he wanted. Um, Julie, why don't you, we'll give you a second to, yeah. to, to follow up. Uh, Sean, if you wanted a, another well, question. It, one, one thing that you didn't address that Carrie Ann yeah. had talked about before is when this is actually administered, the, when the person administers it to yes. themselves, are there witnesses there? To, is that required? No, a witness at the time of administration is not required. And here's the, the thought behind that. We are making people who are dying go through a whole bunch of hurdles to request this medication. They have to go see two doctors. They have to go see the same doctor to request the medication twice. We are trying to remove this from governmental control. This is a personal, private decision. In reality, and I have to give you a reality check, in Oregon, there are four million people who live in Oregon. 218 people 
requested this in 2015, and 132 administered it. We are not talking about huge numbers here. What we're talking about is something that is so intensely private that we are trying to remove it. We, we go through the hurdles, we establish that somebody is capable and qualified to request this medication, and then they, are, they bring it back home to the comfort of their home and their family, and they decide when it's time to take it. As an attorney and as a prosecutor, I have to say I find that witness requirement to be almost ridiculous because you're with your family at the end. Both my parents whittled down who they wanted to be with in their last stages. And it's immediate family, and they are not thinking about other people or witnesses. I mean, both my parents died in hospice care. Even the hospice nurses step out at the end of life because it is so colossally intense. It is not a place for strangers. Carrie Ann, you have concerns, though. There, there's nothing. People are involved, in, 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 as Ms. Ellsberg noted, there were hospice nurses there up until just shortly before the time of death. I'm not saying that somebody needs to sit there with a stopwatch and record the exact second of death and, and watch as somebody dying. But there needs to be some safeguards to ensure these medications are, are being used as, as, as they are intended. And given that the way that, that the law is written to, to prevent any sort of uh, investigation by coroners when this has been requested, it's just a simple, it's a simple, simple safeguard that could be put in place that simply has not been. Because there are risks, and this is a final, this is, this is a lethal prescription. This is not we're giving someone a medication and it might act wrong and, and we'd send them to the hospital. This is, this is, there's no going back. This is, this is the end. So if there's a mistake, you can't fix it. And, and that's, that's of, of, of grave concern. And, and so, so that's really, that's really what, where, where it comes down to is that, yes, but if this is the option someone chooses, it's a small, that's a small, it's a small consideration to ensure the, the safety of the larger community. Erica, our last question will be a, a short answer one, so we're almost time yeah, for we're going down on time, and I'll address mm -hmm. this to you, Carrie Ann. I, I, I want to nail exactly what your opposition is. Is it to the specifics of this proposal, or is it to the idea that this is a slippery slope that is going to lead other places that I don't think that if I'm putting words in your mouth, you don't think society should go. Is it specific to this proposal or is it that slippery slope argument? We have some of both. There are specific concerns with this particular bill in that it, it really it legalizes suicide assistance for some people and it, and it, and it legalizes suicide. You know, it allow, most people get suicide prevention. It legalizes suicide assistance for some people, really based on the class of their disability. But also looking at what has happened in other states and countries where this is where this has been legalized, there is a slippery slope, and we even saw that evident here in Colorado, where there was a proposal to legalize frank euthanasia this this year as well. Julia, a quick response with the closing statements. This is not euthanasia. This is anything but. This is bringing autonomy and self-determination to the dying patient. You have to self-administer. This is not assisted suicide. It is, there, there is absolutely no evidence of a slippery slope. It has not happened. It is speculation, and we can't live in a world of speculation. We live in a world with proven facts and evidence. 
Well, it is time uh, for our closing statements for our debate. We ask each of our representatives to offer one minute closing statement to uh, the voters out there on how they feel about this, um, this particular issue. Let's start with Carrie Ann, who is our opponent. You have one minute. We really view this as a social justice, social justice issue in that sometimes there are things that benefit an individual that would be preferable, but we also legislate and we enact laws on the, on the good of the entire community. And this, law, and this proposed law puts people at risk. It puts people at risk of coercion and abuse and mistakes that will cause people's lives to be lost unnecessarily, be that through financial coercion, be that as a result of, of abuse at a greedy error when we live in a state where there's increasing numbers of, of reports of elder abuse. And, and it's frankly discriminatory. Some people, on the basis of their health or disability status, receive suicide assistance and not, and not suicide prevention, which we allow for everybody else. Thank you much, Carrie Ann. Uh, now the floor is yours, Julie, for one minute. The Colorado Aid in Dying measure is modeled after the law that has been in place in Oregon for more than 18 years. And there have not been any cases of exploitation, abuse, or coercion in use of that law. This law does not bring about more deaths. It brings about fewer people suffering. This is something that my dad had wanted. And I am certain he would have used it in the end, but I am also certain that just having that prescription in hand would have given him the peace of mind to enjoy the little time that we had left together. Medical aid in dying is not a replacement for palliative care, pain management, and hospice. It is a, last, uh, a measure of last resort for people who are suffering in the final stages of a terminal illness and who can self-administer and determine that this is something that they want. I am not advocating that anybody use medical aid in dying. I am asking for it to be an option for those who qualify and seek it. Okay. Thank you very much. That is all the time we have for our look at the issue of medical aid in dying. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us, Julie Silsberg and Carrie Ann Lucas. I'd like to thank my fellow panelists, Sean Boyd and Eric Sonderman. If you'd like to find out more information about any of the general election races, please visit our websites at cpt12.org election or cbsdenver.com and koanewsradio.com. Tune in next Friday at 9 p.m. for our debate covering changes to the Colorado's primary election system. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Gazzutti. Thanks for watching.